Well, for Jesus in his ministry, it was time to draw a line in the sand. Are you familiar with that <laughs> metaphor? To draw a line in the sand? Wikipedia, which is always right, <laughs> says of this metaphor, a line in the sand is a point beyond which once the decision to go beyond this line has been made, there is no going back. The consequences almost are permanently decided and irreversible. I think that is a great description of what, of what occurs in our passage here this morning. I think in many ways, Luke's entire book so far in chapters 1 through 5 has been, has been coming together and converging right at the point of 17 through 26 of chapter 5 on a collision course for this passage. Why? In our passage this morning, we have the first mention of the word faith. In our passage this morning, we have the first mention of the Lord Jesus as the Son of Man. In our passage this morning, we have the first mention of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. In our passage this morning, we have really the first official rejection of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. In our passage this morning, we have the first time that Jesus Christ offers forgiveness and uses the word forgiveness. Everything converges in this passage as if Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. And when He draws a line in the sand, the, the results and as people settle and make their choice on both sides of that line and settle in, there's a trajectory around that line, a trajectory that will end for Jesus at the cross of Calvary. And here is the line that Jesus draws and Luke draws in this book. Here's the line in the sand. It's this. Faith alone, faith alone receives the full forgiveness of sins from the divine Son of Man. That line on the sand is drawn here and people take their sides and we're going to see those contrasting sides settle out even in this passage and take shape for the rest of this book. So let's look at then four contrasts in this passage as sides are taken because Jesus draws this line in the sand. Notice first, the first contrast is this, Jesus versus religious leaders. Jesus versus religious leaders. Verse 17, one day he was teaching. Stop there. Jesus was always teaching, wasn't he? One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. That's from all over geographically. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Okay? 
We know from the account of the healing of the leper that the news about Jesus was spreading like wildfire, right? And even the religious elite had heard the news as a testimony to them of what Jesus did to this leper. And we know when Jesus preaches the gospel and calls people captive in sin and says, I'm here, I am he, I'm here to release you, you know, that news, especially if that news is going to go to the Gentiles, it's not really going to be received well. The Jews in his own hometown with their own little boy Jesus that grew up in their midst, when Jesus preaches that gospel and proclaims who he is to that crowd, they are ready to throw him off a cliff. And so we should expect that if that's the response of his friends, just imagine what the Pharisees and the priests and the scribes would think about the ministry of Jesus. And here it converges where we see this opposition beginning to form. There's something ominous about this passage. There's something about Jesus' teaching. And by the way, there were some Pharisees and scribes doing what? Sitting there. Even that little phrase, sitting there. You think they were smiling at Jesus? Just absorbing his teaching, thrilled with him? You can just see him sitting there. Not thankful for his ministry, not hugging his neck, not waiting for an autograph. They were sitting there. And Jesus says, Here we go. Now it begins. And he draws a line in the sand, not with pictures and metaphors like cleansing and this and that, but with direct words. The first mention of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is right here. And this opposition is going to pick up steam that's going to lead to the false trial and the crucifixion. Was our Lord nervous with them sitting there? I was nervous this week. I preached for my seminary professors at Central Seminary. And frankly, the only people in the room were the professors because a lot of it's Zoom. There were five or six students there or whatever it was. I was nervous. Jesus wasn't nervous. Did he kneel at the feet as they were sitting there to Jesus? Oh, let me butter them up and ask them questions. No, no. The text says it was not the power of the flesh for people-pleasing that was upon Jesus. It was the power of the Spirit for preaching the Word and healing that was upon Jesus. Look at it in verse 17. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. There is a massive conflict in the making between Jesus and the gospel that he offers, and are you ready? Religion. Religion. Brothers and sisters, persecution from religion is real. It's real. If you today are going to hold this line in the sand that we will unpack today in this message, if you will hold this line, every word of it, you don't get to rewrite it, that faith alone, did you hear that? 
Faith alone receives, not earns, receives full forgiveness, not partial forgiveness, full forgiveness of sins from the divine Son of Man, fully God, fully man. If you hold that line, faith alone receives full forgiveness of sins from the divine Son of Man, let me tell you, you will receive persecution and opposition by religion. If you are bold enough to open up your mouth about this, to proclaim this teaching in your neighborhoods, in your coffee shops, to those in your workplaces, to those on your Facebook accounts, to those who are within your family that are sitting there already with seeds of opposition planted against this one Jesus and arms folded, understand that if you're faithful to hold that line and to be on the right side of that line drawn in the sand, then there will be pushback individually as families and as a church. And so as Jesus begins in all his humility and all his loving kindness to hold the truth and receive opposition, do we think that we are greater than our master? No. The opposition of our Lord Jesus Christ is our opposition today. So the first contrast is Jesus versus the religious leaders. And the second contrast, as we move on here, as sides are taken, sides are shaping up, is now this, faith in Jesus versus fear of man. Faith in Jesus versus fear of man. This is in 18 through 20. So Jesus is sitting, is teaching. The scribes and Pharisees are listening. They're sitting there. They they don't look enamored, I'm sure, but I'll tell you, the crowd looked enamored. The crowd was excited. They were pressing in around Jesus Christ. They're packed in. And in that setting, Jesus is in a house, a big house, probably for that day, but there's there's only one entrance to the house, and they're packed in, and, and there's standing room only, but the big wigs get to sit and fold their arms and pass judgment. But there are a few men, maybe four, maybe five, that are carrying a man on a stretcher, a wooden stretcher probably, a paralyzed man, and they're trying to get in the front door of this house. They can hear Jesus teach. He could taught to big numbers of crowds. Um, but they, while they wanted to hear him teach, they kind of wanted to get in front of Jesus. And they're trying to push their way through the crowd, and it's not working. And I was just thinking today about that paralytic in our passage. How humbling is it, you know? You're just kind of bobbing up and down on this cart, getting drug around by a bunch of guys. You got the, the bigwig saying, what is going on with you? You got the people that aren't parting the sea so that you can come through. Well, yeah, do you think they parted the sea for the leper? No, this, this man was cursed by God just by the, as, as far as they were concerned, just like the leper, paralyzed, deformed. He would be just like the leper. He would be socially outcast, judged as a great sinner. He would be simply a beggar, outcast, thought by everyone, and probably including the leper himself as one cursed by God for his sin. So people weren't going to part the sea and let him into Jesus. No, I've gotten in line first. Get away from me. 
loser. Well, they can't get through. They try to get through. Perhaps they could say things like this. We'll sit outside the door. We will wait till the crowd disperses and we'll try to grab Jesus. Let's see if we can get an audience with him, get before him. But you know what? They don't even wait around. Instead, they get creative. They're so persistent. They're so persistent. These, these men want to get their friend right before Jesus, the friends of the paralytic men. What a heart of love they have for their friend. Have you thought about those men? What a heart of love they have for their friend. There is no greater act of love for a friend than try to get that friend before Jesus at all costs. No greater act of love than that. Well, they couldn't push him through the crowd, but let's find out what they did next. Let's look at the text. Verse 18. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And, now watch this, they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. It wasn't working. What do they do? Verse 19. But not finding any way. They tried this way. They tried that way. They could have waited around. They're not going to be deterred. They didn't find any other way, but they got creative. They couldn't find any way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. So they had this great idea. The normal entrance to that house was blocked. They couldn't think of any other way than one of them probably had the idea. Let's get, let's, we have to go up. And so if you think of a, a, a house, there's a second story. And the roof sort of was a place to, you know, is that outdoor? You could put plants up there. You could be outside. Sometimes they had a balcony. The roof was really a second floor. And so there was always, you know, a ladder to get up there. And so they looked around, and sure enough, it's usually on the side or back of the house. So you can see them, you know, running the guy around. They find the ladder. I mean, it's a little hard to get up a ladder with a stretcher, but they're not going to be turned back. They, you know, they get this thing up. They're climbing up the ladder. They get up to the top. Okay, uh, I don't know what their names are. Let's give them one. Simeon, hey, where do you think Jesus was standing when he was teaching? Let's see. Right, we got it. We got it triangulated here. And then that, now, the houses, they had beams, the roofs coming this way and then crisscross them. And so they've got these little squares they've got to find, and they've got to find where Jesus is teaching, find a square. And then what they did is they, um, they took the tile at the very top, probably a little bit of a rich home, probably pretty big because not everybody had tiles. So they took the tiles up, okay, they tile up. Underneath that tile were two feet of packed stuff in the roof. Um, thorns, uh, tree branches, bushes, kind of forming the framework for the cement of mud that packed in two feet thick. 
They triangulate, they find out where it is, they pull the tile up, they start digging. It's not their house. (laughs) They dig their way through, and Jesus is teaching away, you know, one of his parables, I'm sure. He's teaching, 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 packed in. And all of a sudden, Jesus is teaching, and then all of a sudden, mud starts falling on the floor right in front of them. People start pulling away, and then beams of light from the roof are popping in around Jesus. What's Jesus' response? He's probably had a smile on his face. Here we go. Here we go. I'm not sure what the owner of the house must have thought. Maybe, like me, being, a, you know, attention with, for, for money, probably would have quickly been looking at his country insurance policy to see if this is covered in the homeowner's as he breaks down this roof. Then, in the smaller area between the beams, somehow these four men with their little, with, they have this, this paralytic on the thing, they get it through the hole of the roof without dropping the guy, and they lower him down right in front of Jesus, right before him. Look, that's embarrassing. But they would not be turned away Were they embarrassed by the scribes and the Pharisees sitting down in their power and saying, you know what, we'll come back when they're gone? Were they embarrassed of what the crowds must have thought? Were they worried about the homeowner at that point? No, he must get before Jesus. The paralytic must get before Jesus. He would not be turned away. He would not give up. He went through some amazing things to get him in front of Jesus. And there's one word that describes these five men and their efforts to get before Jesus. One word for the first time used out of the mouth of Jesus in this book. One word that describes breaking through the roof to get in front of Jesus and will not being turned away, the persistence of it. And look at it. It's found in verse 20. Seeing their what? Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Brothers and sisters, this is faith. This is faith. Faith persists to get to Jesus and says, fear of man, away. In spite of the fear of man, faith persists. True faith must come to Jesus. True faith must get before Jesus. True faith, when the Lord is working and you see your spiritual paralysis and Jesus is here, he's within earshot. He might pass me by. This might be my one chance to get before him. Faith persists. Jesus, I need you. I know you can help me. These words don't, these men do not speak a word in this passage. Actions speak louder than words. This is faith. Burdened by our need for Jesus. Jesus, I'm not leaving you until you save me. Save me, I need you, Jesus. Friends say, well, aren't you going to drink with us? Aren't you going to swear with us? Aren't you going to do what we do? I don't need that. I need Jesus. 
I don't care. I need Jesus. I will not be turned away. That's faith. That's faith for the first time. When you come to Jesus, that's what faith looks like. Believer, don't throw away this definition of faith. Every day we're repenting and believing. And we're trying to find Jesus. We're trying against a lot of odds and a lot of people and a lot of peer pressure and a lot of scheduling errors. We're, we're having a hard time getting before Jesus. Am I right? Faith persists. Faith must get before him. It must have an audience with their king. It must be blessed by Jesus. What if we came to our personal devotions with faith? So faith looks like persistence of these men as they dug through that roof and dropped him down before Jesus. Without the fear of man, faith presses into Jesus. What does faith believe? Let's look then at the third contrast. The third contrast as sides are taken, as sides are taken around the line in the sand that Jesus is drawing. Third contrast is this, a humanly good man, that Jesus is a humanly good man versus the divine son of man. A humanly good man versus the divine son of man in verses 20 through 24. Okay. Does, let's look at what happens next. Let me ask you a question. Those who are being baptized need to listen. Those who say, you know, Jesus would never accept me. I need to for 20 years before I can be sure I'm saved. Let me ask you a question of this passage. Is that how it works? It's not how it works. It's not how it works. Jesus has never in the history of the universe turned away anyone who, who comes to him in faith. I'm serious. So does he say, well, let me think here. Let me check my calendar here. How does he respond to faith when he finds it? Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Does he do a, you know, eight-week Bible study with them first? Make sure it's real? No, I'm serious. Jesus says, then, right there, that moment, your sins are forgiven you. He calls him friend. Everybody else calls him a loser. He calls him friend. Jesus doesn't think about it for long. He doesn't delay Jesus always responds to sincere faith. That is good news. Jesus always responds to sincere faith right away, all the way. And look at what he does. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. I mean, how, how nice is Jesus? His sermon got interrupted. Debris is falling on his head. Friend. <laughs> Your sins are forgiven you. He loved this one. And he calls this forsaken man, forsaken by all others, he calls the forsaken man friend. Jesus, what a friend of sinners. And what does he do with your sin? Did I read the text right? I didn't. 
Friend, your sins, plural, all of them are forgiven you. All of them, past, present, and future, sins, plural, all of your sins are forgiven you. I don't like to get into grammar much, at least publicly, with this passage, but this is beautiful. Are you ready for you Greek grammarians? Here it is. Your sins are forgiven you. This is called a, are you ready? Perfect passive verb. Here's the point. Your sins have been forgiven you. In other words, the guy laying there didn't do anything. He's passive. He's just laying there. Jesus does the forgiving. Your sins have been. That's the passive side of it. The perfect side of it. What does that mean? Here's what it means. That moment, something happened for that man. His sins were forgiven. And what the perfect verb means is something happens and it puts you in a fixed state that does not change. You're called the forgiven one. The forgiven one. Uh, your friend, your sins have been forgiven. You are forgiven. You are a forgiven one. You're in the state of forgiveness. And that's what Jesus declares over him that day. Boom. Done. He's forgiven. He doesn't need to earn it. He doesn't need to maintain it. It's a fixed and final state. And that fixed and final state in the perfect tense has an ongoing relevance, will have an ongoing joy and relevance and power for every day in that man's life until the very end. The perfect tense. I love the perfect passive. Through faith in Jesus, we will be forgiven all of our sins. And Jesus doesn't just proclaim forgiveness like some priest waving around an incantation. No, no. Jesus forgives directly. He cancels the debt of the sin of the paralytic. He blots his sin out forever. He removes his sin as far as the east is from the west. He pardons his sin. He cleanses his soul. Can a mere man do this? No. Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Just write this reference down. Micah chapter 7, verse 18 says this. If you're fast, you can turn to it, but I don't have the page number. I apologize. Micah chapter 7, verse 18 says, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? Stop there. Who pardons iniquity? God alone. Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? Listen to this description of forgiveness. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. This is the God 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God who forgives sins. Jesus forgave sins like this. Do you think there was a message there? And that's where I want you to be shocked. This is where Jesus draws a line in the sand. Jesus standing right there in the flesh forgives this man's sins in fulfillment of Micah chapter 7. And I'll tell you, the theologians of the day sitting there, they might have been stubborn and hard-hearted, but they were smart theologians. They knew what Jesus was saying. They knew he was claiming to be Yahweh in the flesh, claiming to be God. That's why the next verses in the Bible look at it in verse 21. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law correct in this assessment of what Jesus was claiming? Yes, they were. They were absolutely correct. Only God can forgive sins. And if Jesus is not God, then He has just blasphemed God. He has spoken evil of the law of God. He has just slandered of God. And he went to the highest level of blasphemy that MacArthur notes, where the rights and prerogatives of God are usurped, are taken on, and the role of God is taking on, and he acts as if he were God. He does what only God can do. It is the worst and ultimate form of of blasphemy in that culture. And they were angry about it. They were appalled and outraged, to say the least. And Jesus is aware of their reasoning. And in verse 22 through 24, notice what Jesus says. But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are your reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, Get up and walk? You know, here's the answer to that question. Which is easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven you or to say get up and walk? Here's here's the answer that Jesus is getting at. I get it, Jesus says. It's much easier just to say, hey, honey, your sins are forgiven. Who can verify that it has happened or not? Which is easier to say? Well, obviously, it's much easier to say your sins have been forgiven than to say, hey, paralytic for decades, get up and walk. It's way easier to say. He knows what they're thinking. This guy can say that all he wants. Where's the proof? So Jesus says, well, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. And immediately he got up. So Jesus knows what they're reasoning. You can say that. Anyone can say that. It's easier to say that. Yep, it is easier. But so that you would know 
that I have the authority to say it and to actually do it. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what is verifiable, what isn't written on the tablet of my heart, what isn't underneath, and isn't just words. Hey, I say to you, and he makes it clear, I'm the one talking here. I'm the one with authority here. I'm taking the authority of God. I'm the Son of Man. Not derived. I say to you, get up. Pick up your pallet, which is quite heavy. Thank you. It took four guys. And walk. And I'll tell you what, there were plenty of witnesses there that day. Jesus couldn't fake it. The paralyzed man couldn't move. And you could tell if he was healed. You could tell if he could move. And immediately, the text says in verse 25, he gets up. Look at it. Immediately, he got up. Look at this. He got up before them. Before the crowd, before the, the Pharisees, he got up before them as a testimony to them. We had the priests, now we got the Pharisees and the scribes. Testified of the authority and the power of Jesus to forgive sins. And so the answer is yes, Jesus can forgive your sins. He cannot just say it, he can do it. Case study, get up and walk. Now listen, if you're here and you haven't been forgiven yet, let me tell you, you could go to your house today in the afternoon drinking your cup of tea and be saved. You could be freely forgiven forever. Jesus can forgive your sins today, today, if you would come to him seeing that you are a sinner and say, Jesus, I need you, forgive me. He will forgive your sins instantly. Perfect tense, passive. You won't have anything to do it with it. He'll do it, and it will be a state of forgiveness. You will be a friend of Jesus. Did this paralytic have to work for another 20 years to finally secure full healing and full forgiveness? How long did he work for healing? He didn't work at all for healing. He came helpless to Jesus and begged for help. What kind of a Savior can do that for you and have it be fixed in a state forever? I'll tell you, not one who's mere man. Ah, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Turn in your Bibles. Keep your fingers here, but turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7 and find verse 13. The Son of Man is the first time it's used here. It's Jesus' favorite description of Himself. Other people do not call Him this. He calls Himself this. He calls Himself the Son of Man. And He is, he is looking back to Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. Look at verse 13 of Daniel 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one 
which will not be destroyed. Daniel chapter 7. Now listen carefully. See this. Daniel chapter 7, in the Son of Man, the word Son of Man is a nod to the humanity of Christ. It's a nod to the humanity of Christ. Son of Man in the Old Testament is an indication of a messianic title, the Son of Man. But more than all of that, the the title Son of Man, according to Daniel 7, is a title of of deity. This is a title for God himself. The description of the Son of Man coming on the clouds, that's the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who comes and makes waste to the Antichrist, receives the kingdom from the ancient of days, gives it to his people that they might rule with him. This one, like the Son of Man, the text says, comes with the clouds of heaven in verse 13. He travels like Yahweh does. This is a symbol of divine authority in the Old Testament without exception. Without exception, only God rides upon the clouds. Further, in this section, this Son of Man, all the peoples, nations of men of every language might serve Him. That word for serve is, an, is the idea of worship and adoration. This one called the Son of Man has the authority and is rightfully deserving of worship. That speaks of His deity. And what mere man receives an everlasting kingdom that will cover the whole earth and then be given in to the new heavens and the new earth? And in chapter 7, verse 14, the Son of Man is given this kingdom. But if you happen to turn to Daniel chapter 7, then look at verse 26. This will cinch it. At the end, when the Antichrist is rising for time, times and half a time, persecuting the saints of the highest one, we'll pick it up in verse 26. But the court will sit for judgment, speaking of the Antichrist, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, And the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people. What? Will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Of the highest one. Watch this. Who is the highest one? Of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And all the dominions will serve and obey Him. So we know that the Son of Man is one who's given the everlasting kingdom. It's His kingdom, and He is called the highest one, the most high in Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is a divine title. Jesus was claiming to be God in the flesh, very clearly as He called Himself the Son of Man. The line has drawn in the sand. No more hints, no more pictures, no more symbols. Let's call a spade a spade. Let's call it forgiveness. Let's call it faith. And let me tell you who I am. I am the Son of Man. 
And you know what's so amazing here is this, and we'll soon move into our communion with this thought. What's so amazing about this, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Well, I'll tell you, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. But for Jesus, he didn't just say your sins are forgiven. Do you realize that three years later, he would very much have to do something about our sin? (laughs) Not just talk about it. He would have to do more than talk. In fact, instead of saying your sins are forgiven, our Lord Jesus exercised his authority at the end to close his mouth and not say anything and go to the scourging, the mocking, and take the spikes and hang upon that tree in the place of the leper's sins, in the place of the paralytic sins, in the place of everyone who would ever believe from time to time's end. He powerfully laid down his authority for you. He exercised his authority in his humility. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Is he a humanly good man or is he the divine son of man? That is a line drawn in the sand for you today. Make your choice. We've come to that point. This is who he's claiming to be. And that leads us to our last contrast. You have two choices. The line is drawn in the sand, the rest of this book. You either reject, it's either rejection of Jesus or it's reception of Jesus. Look at 25. He will speak out against the most... Whoops, that's Daniel. Let's go back to Luke. Chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 says, Immediately he got up before them, he picked up what he had been lying on, and he went home bored with it all. Is that what the text says? He went home glorifying God. And they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. That's the response to our salvation. We receive Jesus or we reject Jesus. And I'll tell you what, listen to me. If you, did that paralytic wonder, you know, I'm not quite sure if I can walk. I'm not sure just not sure. No, he knew that he could walk and he glorified God. He was filled with fear, awe and wonder and with joy. You see. And he says, we have seen remarkable things today. That's a remarkable word. That word says, that word means we have seen things that have exceeded our expectations. That's what the word remarkable means in verse 26. And I'll tell you what, that man, his expectations were exceeded. 
I want you to notice something about this healing. They try to get in front of Jesus so that Jesus could do what? Cause them to walk. Right? It's kind of a bummer a little bit. Your sins are forgiven. Okay. But I'd like to, you know, walk. There's a message there. What that man really needed, whether he knew it fully or not, and I believe he knew it well and was fully satisfied in his forgiveness. But what he needed more than anything else was not different circumstances for his life. What he needed was the Christ. He needed the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus is such like this. This is how his grace is. It exceeded expectations. He got them both that day. (laughs) That's who our Christ is. That's who he is. That's what he is like. And by the way, that's who God is. And that's what he is like. For when we see Jesus, we see what God is like. Oh, brothers and sisters, if you are saved here today, has your salvation exceeded your expectations? Or are you underwhelmed by it? Do not reject Jesus. Do not ignore the Son of Man. Do not put this passage out of your mind. Listen, if you haven't come to Christ, break through the roof today. Break through today. Don't worry about what your friends think. Get before Jesus. Get in front of him. Come to him. Let no one stop you and you will be saved. You will be saved. Jesus himself invites us in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and you will learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light.